You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome to Fired Up, everybody. Happy Monday. And hope you guys have had a great day and are at the start of a great week. Welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. My name is Steve. I host the show each week. And uh, as always, we're going to start off with our COVID recap Uh, for this week. We are sitting at 36.7 million cases of the uh, disease reported. 621,600 people have uh, unfortunately died from the disease over the course of the pandemic. And uh, we have 354.7 million people who have received at least one dose of the uh, COVID vaccine with about 69% of the adult population actually uh, being fully vaccinated. So we continue to make progress on that front. And that's good news, and we want to keep that up. So make sure that if you have the chance to get your vaccination, please go ahead, go out, and get it done. Uh, It is the best, easiest way to keep yourself, your family, your community, and your country safe from the pandemic. Um, and we've talked extensively about this over the last, uh, well, over the last year, to be real, but uh, intensively over the last few weeks, especially with the rise of the Delta variant. Um, I do want to touch on one COVID-related story that uh, came up last week, and that is the annual Sturgis uh, motorcycle rally in uh, Sturgis, North Dakota, uh, concluded last week. And uh, you may recall, I reported on this uh, after last year's rally, and you know there were estimates of between one and three thousand people uh, who attended that rally who ended up being infected with COVID. We still don't have numbers out on this year's rally. However, just like last year, the overwhelming majority of people that attended uh, were not wearing masks. Um, we don't have any data on how many of them were vaccinated. However, anecdotally, uh, a lot of people interviewed said that they weren't uh, vaccinated, they didn't care about being vaccinated, or they didn't intend to get vaccinated. So uh, we'll keep uh, uh, an eye on that as numbers come out, as the tracing begins to tie cases back to Sturgis. But, you know, just just like last year, uh, the message going out, if you're going to be in large gatherings, um, you know, especially with the infection rate of the Delta variant and all of the things that we've been talking about over the past uh, few months, uh, definitely want to uh, get back in the habit of wearing your mask when you're in crowded situations, uh, practicing the social distancing as best as you can, and washing your hands and face and generally practicing good hygiene uh, at, at any time uh, that the potential is there for you to be exposed. So, you know, moving right along from that, and please, everybody, uh, do what you need to do in order to get safe, be safe, and stay safe. All right, in the news, um, as I said, the, the Sturgis rally just concluded. Um, there was an article in the Daily Beast that talks about it. You can go to the Daily Beast and look up Sturgis bike rally and see the article. It's real short, uh, but basically the... The, the feedback of it is, you know, most people really just either can't, won't, or aren't paying attention 
to what medicine and science is telling us about the disease. So as I said, we'll keep an eye on that and move forward. Um, there are some other subjects in the news that I want to get uh, to, and in particular, uh, we're going to kick it off with report that came out from the Bureau of the Census over the last week where the reports are starting to come out from the 2020 census. The first one that came out uh, has been receiving a lot of attention in the media and it's been talking about the uh, 2020 census data on population growth uh, by racial group in this country over the past 10 years. And this report has sent some shockwaves uh, through uh, communities in the country, particularly uh, communities of white people in this country, uh, because it has shown that ethnic minorities in this country grew at a higher rate than uh, white people did over the last 10 years. And in fact, the growth rate for white people actually was lower in this past census report, uh, the one just completed, as compared to the 2010 census report. So, you know, the, the, the report found, the census report shows that uh, white people, although are still the largest racial or ethnic group with a total of 235.4 million people identifying either as white alone or in combination with another group, However, the population of people who identified as white alone decreased by 8.6% since 2010. And uh, this is a report that I pulled out of Yahoo News uh, that was filed on Thursday, the 12th of August. Uh, the, off, the decrease in the white population is, uh, is offset, excuse me, by a significant increase in the number of people who identify as two or more races or multiracial, which grew by 276% over the past decade, from 9 million in 2010 to 33.8 million in 2020. Uh, and again, this is coming from the demographics data released by the Census Bureau on Thursday. And this data in part is used by the states to redraw elect electoral districts and help distribute help shape the distribution of federal funding and uh, it's it was originally scheduled to be released in March but because of the uh, pandemic it was delayed so this report was uh, one of the early reports that uh, is being released from the census data and there will be uh, a whole lot more as the data is further analyzed and broken down and reported out However, as I said, uh, this initial release that showed that the uh, population that identified themselves as white actually decreased by nearly 9% over the past 10 years, uh, some people found very shocking and concerning, uh, combined with the fact that multiracial and other uh, ethnic so-called minority groups uh, showed significant growth over the same time period has led to a, a, a host of conversations being held about uh, fears of, you know, quote, white people losing their power in this country. And, you know, it, it's clear that, you know, there is, you know, some genuine or, or, or there is some genuine but perhaps misplaced concern over that factor. Um, 
while it's true that, you know, the prediction that at some point in America's future that the largest group of population will be non-white in this country uh, has, is not news, uh, the fact that this growth uh, spur occurred over just a single 10-year period seems to have sent some alarm through the, uh, the white community. Now, let's be real. Even if uh, white people in this country are a statistical, a.k.a. numerical, minority part of the population, they still overwhelmingly control the economic engines of this country, the political and elected uh, official populations of this country, and, you know, truthfully, um, you know, white people, you've got nothing to fear, really. Um, nothing is going to change, but just the number of you there are. So, you know, and, and we're going to touch back on this in, in uh, a further portion of the segment that I'm going to talk about. But, you know, there is still the overwhelming amount of political and economic uh, control that is exercised. Uh, by white people in this country is something that even a small 9% drop in your growth rate uh, really isn't making or going to make a dent in. So, you know, your, your concerns are, are misplaced. Uh, however, I encourage you to use it as an incentive to reach out and seek, you know, more understanding and, you know, more communication and contact with people of color in this country and you know work on building those bridges of communication and trust and you know cooperation uh as we you know try to build a better america so we'll keep on track uh with the census data as it continues to roll out um it, it is an interesting uh thing to to look at um you know and you know keep in mind that you know, overall, the population growth in the United States uh, has slowed significantly uh, over the past decade, as I indicated earlier. Uh, right now, the total population as of April 1st, uh, 2020, uh, was 331,449,281, uh, and that represents a growth of uh, 22.7 million uh, individuals more than it was in 2010. And that growth rate is the lowest uh, population increase in the country's history. Uh, and the, the article concludes by saying only the 1930s showed slower growth. So, you know, there, there's, you know, not really a whole lot for concern there. It's just some interesting information that just shows that the, the uh, ethnic makeup of the United States, uh, the melting pot, as it were, uh, continues to become more blended uh, and you know less monolithic in terms of who makes up the population of this country. But as I said, uh, the census is always full of very interesting uh, demographic and uh, data and statistics, and we will be tapping into that resource. Uh, periodically as the weeks go by and as more information comes out. So stay tuned right here to Fired Up to find out more about how the census data is telling the story of America. 
and, and side note, I do apologize for the increase in background noise. Uh, it's a beautiful day out here in Pennsylvania where we record and all the motorcycle and hot rod people decided to take today to go ride their cars and my soundproofing isn't doing much to protect from it. So again, I apologize for that. Uh, anyway, moving right along, uh, related to this story is um, one that I, I wanted to touch on um, last week, but there were some other intervening stories that uh, took a, a precedent. Um, and it, it's on another piece of news that has come out over the last couple of weeks regarding, uh, and it's related to the census because it involves the exercise of, of redistricting the uh, Congress of the United States based on population shifts as recorded in the census. Uh, as you know, every 10 years when the census is done, one of the major tasks that come out of that effort is that the data is handed to the state legislatures to do the exercise of redrawing and reallocating the uh, population to the number of U.S. congressional representatives that we have in this country. As I said in the last segment, uh, the U.S. population as of April uh, 2020 was counted at 331.3 million people. And, you know, there are 435 uh, uh, representatives in the U.S. House of Representatives, which means that each representative in Congress has a total of about 762,000 constituents that they report to or that they are answerable to. So, you know, the, the purpose of redistricting each year is to reallocate and rebalance the number of constituents each congressional representative has in their district back to that magic 762,000 per representative. And because populations move around the country and some states gain uh, population while other states lose population, the number of congressional seats that some states have uh, will change. Uh, for example, preliminary numbers show that uh, uh, California, I believe, is gaining a seat and New York is losing a seat and so on and so forth. Uh, once the, the numbers come out more clearly, uh, I'll report those and, and probably put a table of what that means on the Facebook page so that you can reference it for yourself based on you know, which state you live in. But the, the bottom line is that, you know, one of the things that happens around the, the census taking the 10-year period of the census is that when these districts are drawn, uh, in many cases, they are drawn to favor one political party over another. And, you know, we've talked about this before on the show. It's a process called gerrymandering. Uh, you've probably heard about it if you've been listening to the news at any point uh, over the last, you know, weeks, months, years. And gerrymandering is the process by which uh, the party in power at the state level draws congressional districts based on the number of people in their party in a particular area. So what does that mean? Well, 
if you have, you know, X number of people in your state and the Constitution requires that the population be uh, evenly distributed among the, the congressional representatives, uh, one way that you could do it is basically to carve out a geographical circle or square or some shape that has 762,000 people in it, and boom, that's your district. Um, gerrymandering comes at it from the standpoint of, you know, if you're a Democrat, then you want to carve out areas where there are more Democrats than Republicans and create your district out of that map and that's your district that now leans much more heavily Democratic. Or, you know, likewise for Republicans, where you would gather districts where, you know, Republican voters, uh, according to the census data, are more populous, and, you know, those that didn't vote Republican are less populous, so that you end up with a majority Republican district, thereby doing two things, one guaranteeing that your Republican agenda uh, will meet the approval of your constituents and that your seat is, quote, safe, close quote, because it's backed up by a Republican district. Now, this is the process that has been exercised by the Republican Party since the 1960s. Uh, and I went back through the, the show logs where I keep records of uh, everything that I talk about on the show. And I found that it was among the topics that I discussed on the very first show of the Fired Up Radio program. And it appeared again on the ninth show and the 13th show. And, you know, three or four more shows over the course of the, uh, you know, now 80-something shows that we have done with this this program. Uh, so it, it has been a subject we have touched on many times. Uh, it is also, you know, as I said, uh, came out of the Southern strategy. It is also very closely tied to efforts that we've also talked about a lot on this show in terms of voter disenfranchisement and voter suppression and, you know, the, the changes that we've talked extensively over the last six months about, you know, proposals in Republican-controlled states to limit voting hours, restrict early voting days, eliminate mail-in ballots, and, and all of these tactics designed to restrain uh, certain segments of the population, most typically those that don't vote Republican. So, you know, the, the idea of gerrymandering Drawing a district that favors your party very heavily, as well as using that leverage in the state uh, to exercise control over the voting process, both of which are guaranteed states' uh, rights under the Constitution of the United States. Uh, it is not a federal process to draw congressional districts, nor is it a federal process to manage day-to-day -day the process of running elections in the individual states. Those responsibilities are delegated under the Constitution to the states themselves. And as such, the states can do pretty much, you know, w within some constraints and reasons, pretty much whatever they want um, to run their elections, 
to to draw their districts as long as it abides by the rules that are listed in the Constitution, uh, they can do that. So the the challenge becomes for uh, for Democrats in a given district who may numerically outnumber Republicans in in the state, but because the district has been drawn to carve out those pockets of Republican strongholds end up actually having less real authority uh, in the, the state uh, legislature as well as the federal government uh, simply because of the way the districts were drawn. And we have seen this uh, become more of a case uh, in, in recent years, and by recent years I mean the last 10 or 15 years, where the a, a larger and larger number of Republican House and Senate seats uh, represent a smaller and smaller portion of the American population. You know, if you look at you know the the last elections that went on, you can see where you know while Democrats did outvote, did show up more, the Republicans uh, actually gained more overall in the elections than Democrats did, particularly at the state level. Again, because of this influence of gerrymandering, this influence of these uh, voter disenfranchisement tactics that have been at play over the last um, nine or ten years. So, you know, the, the power of gerrymandering is one that, at current, is being wielded by Republicans. Uh, they are looking forward to be able to to fine-tune and redraw their districts to have an even tighter control and thereby guarantee a Republican chain of succession at the state level and on up into the federal level, uh, you know, for whatever that means. So, you know, it, it, it is clear that this is an issue that we need to, to have some action on. And although as citizens, uh, there isn't, you know, much physically we can do other than exercise our right to protest and draw attention to our concerns and to communicate to our elected officials in the state legislatures what our wishes are that districts be drawn more uniformly, more, um, more uh, general in, in nature and, you know, not just exclusively uh, or as close to exclusively of one party or the other as, you know, they can make it. And, you know, it, as an exercise, if you want to see the effects of gerrymandering, uh, you can go to the uh, congressional webpage, the, the federal uh, House webpage, and there is a map there of the current districts held by the, the current representatives, and you can look at the shape of these districts, and some of them are, are just bizarre. You know, they're, they're a horseshoe with a spiral on it or a jagged line that zigzags for 150 miles through a state. Uh, and this is all by uh, Republican legislatures sitting down and going county by county, uh, town by town, uh, figuring out where their, their uh, electoral strongholds are and including those in their district map until they come up to the required total need to, they need to have. And, and as I said, 
right now, given the population, it would be about 762,000 uh, people per congressperson. Now, the Senate, on the other hand, doesn't have this issue because every state has two senators, period. They represent, um, you know, they represent 50% of the state, but they represent the whole state at the same time. That is, they can be a Republican or a Democrat, but they are the, collectively they are responsible for the entire state. So there's just two of them. Uh, so gerrymandering isn't much of a thing at the Senate level. But at the House level, it is uh, a, a highly, highly um, volatile and sought-after commodity because the House controls uh, the budget. The House controls, or at least most of the time, is the starting point for all federal legislation. Uh, it is one of the three um, arms of the government that handles the creation of laws, the House, the Senate, and the executive represented by the White House. And, you know, there, there is a lot of power to be had by controlling as much of the voting geography uh, as you can uh, when you're in the House of Representatives. So, you know, we will be looking out for the estimates that come out of how the, the House is going to fare under redistricting. Uh, it may be that, you know, the, the Democratic majority uh, will be eliminated simply through redistricting rather than through any effort of the midterm elections, which don't happen until November 2022. Uh, but given that redistricting is a, a tedious process and it does take time, it's not likely that we'll see any kind of finalized results uh, you know, before the end of this year. Uh, I, I would be surprised personally if uh, they came back with redistricting maps before then. Uh, just because it is such a tedious process. So, you know, we'll keep you, we'll keep you posted, as always. Uh, and, of course, make sure that you're communicating with your elected officials, in this case, particularly at the state level. So, let's take our break right here. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve, and we'll be right back after the break. I'm United States Surgeon General Jerome Adams, America's doctor. And all across our nation, we've taken steps together to slow the spread of coronavirus. Now we must continue to take personal responsibility to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Because even though not all of us risk a severe case of coronavirus, we all risk getting it and spreading it to others, maybe without even realizing that we're sick. So if we wanna get back to school, back to work, back to worship, and back to overall health. There are things our country needs to do. We need to follow state and local guidelines, take extra precautions if at higher risk, wash our hands frequently, stay six feet from others when we can, and when we can't stay six feet from others, please, I'm begging you, wear a face covering. These small actions will make a big difference. So I'm asking you to say it with me, America. Coronavirus stops with me. You can learn more at coronavirus.gov. Produced by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at taxpayer expense. And welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to Here to Fire It Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. And uh, we're going to get right back into the political narrative. But I did want to take a second and just uh, give you some information 
Uh, I mentioned in the previous segment that uh, the discussions on gerrymandering were in earlier episodes of the show. And I wanted to let you know that uh, obviously you can hear our show, you know, uh, as you're listening to it now, every Monday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, right on WJMSRadio.com forward slash Fired Up. But did you also know that all of the Fired Up episodes are archived and are listed or, or contained on our SoundCloud archive site? And that is at SoundCloud.com forward slash WJMSRadio forward slash sets, S-E-T-S, and forward slash fired up. I'll post those links on the uh, Facebook page, which is at Fired Up Radio, and you can get them there. Otherwise, uh, as I said, uh, go to the SoundCloud site and search for WJMS Radio, and you'll see all of the shows uh, that are carried on this great station uh, listed there. there. That's our demand location and uh, you can get to the fired up section from there so you know feel free to go back and check out earlier episodes uh, we are are very proud of you know what we post up up there and uh, hopefully you can go back you know backfill get some information on stuff that we may have talked about in the past and so forth so that being said um, we get back into what's going on in the political world and you know something to be aware of and I know we've talked about it on this show uh, frequently over the last uh, few years uh, particularly as we went through the uh, administration of former President Donald Trump and the uh, results uh, that have occurred within the Republican Party uh, since his departure from office uh, what we've noted is that there has been a, a very defined and very noticeable and very public fracture in the party between uh, those who are, you know, quote, diehard, close quote, Trump supporters uh, within the House and Senate and those that, you know, are, you know, Republican in the more traditional sense. Well, it seems that uh, not only is there a fracture in the Republican Party, but now we're seeing uh, a few fractures appear on the Democratic side, particularly in the debate over uh, President Biden's you know, agenda items of the infrastructure bill and you know, both the hard infrastructure bill um, that was uh, passed by the uh, Senate uh, just last week and the upcoming uh, so-called human infrastructure bill, uh, which is going to be moving through under the, the uh, reconciliation rules of the House uh, because it involves things that are, are tied and related to the budget. Well, it, it appears that in the Democratic Party, uh, there are some House moderates uh, according to an article uh, from this, I believe, came from the Washington Post, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, you know, it is clear that uh, there is some disagreement among several members of the Democratic Party uh, over the way forward on the two infrastructure bills. Um, and the article 
which was written by um, David Atkins, and this came out on the 14th of August. And it, it leads off with uh, most of the Beltway narrative about Democratic intra-party infighting pit supposedly beleaguered moderates loyally supporting Democratic priorities and trying to hold onto frontline districts versus disloyal progressives in safe seats making irresponsible demands that threaten the caucus majority. Now, this article is, you know, an opinion piece uh, by David Atkins, but he does outline some very interesting thoughts on what is currently happening within the Democratic Party. Uh, so, you know, he, he goes on to talk about, um, you know, the, the, the relationships of progressives in Congress uh, who usually stake out the more popular policy positions, uh, do much of the nitty-gritty legislative work, do not scuttle important bills, and in any case have every right to represent their districts as faithfully as any others. Uh, but what we are seeing is that you know, the, the results of these two huge infrastructure bills uh, is predicated on you know, a, a, a rather delicate uh, balancing act between four distinct factions within the House and Senate. Uh, one of those is uh, Senate centrists like Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema who insist on a bipartisan approach. Senate Republicans whose demands matter only because of the aforementioned, um, you know, those uh, bipartisan supporters. The majority of House Democrats who strongly feel they need to deliver for their constituents both on substantive and electoral grounds and finally house quote moderates close quote who fear repercussions from both republicans and their biggest donors uh, stick a pin in that we're going to come back and talk about that in order to keep the jig going so you know the the upshot is the democratic party has taken a two-track approach to this massive infrastructure uh, proposal. Basically, as I said a few moments ago, it has been split into a hard infrastructure uh, uh, bill, which is much more pleasing to not only uh, progressive and moderate Democrats, but also to Republicans as well, because it benefits their constituencies as much as it benefits uh, Democratic constituencies. Um, and the soft uh, infrastructure bill, as it's being called, which you know includes things uh, in support of education efforts and and so on and so forth that aren't you know about shovels in the ground, you know bulldozers pushing dirt kind of hard infrastructure projects, but are nevertheless uh, desperately needed in this country. Um, and you know those. Uh, that, that second category is the one that is going to likely go through the reconciliation process where because they are able to tie it to the budget, uh, the Democrats can move that through the Senate with a simple majority that is, you know, the, the 50 plus one, which they already have, and, you know, potentially uh, move it through the House as well on the slim majority they have there, which is, you know, eight seats all, all told. Um, but, you know, 
some things that are, you know, creating some additional waves and vibrations in this include the fact that there are several moderate Republicans who, you know, are, are in favor of, you know, much of the soft infrastructure proposal and, you know, all of the hard infrastructure proposal. Uh, when that passed the Senate, it actually got a total of 69 votes, uh, which is, you know, uh, nine votes more than they needed to defeat any potential filibuster and is what is called the so-called supermajority. And, you know, it, it's looking like um, the, the House side may be a little bit more problematic uh, where these nine House moderates are upsetting the balance by insisting uh, on a vote on the just-passed bipartisan bill before the reconciliation bill arrives. And let's, let's jump out of the article and talk about that a little bit. So in, in the plan that was put forward by Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and leader of the Senate Chuck Schumer, the idea was that these two bills would be split apart into the hard infrastructure bill that I just talked about and the soft in infrastructure bill as well. Uh, and that under the Pelosi plan, uh, they would be voted on uh, separately, but, quote, as a package, close quote, in that uh, one would not be official without a successful vote on the other. And that seems to have been the start of where this fracture in the Democratic caucus uh, is coming from. The moderates uh, want to insist that the bill that was just passed through the Senate the hard infrastructure bill be voted on and sent to President Biden's desk for signature uh, right away. And then the work can continue on the second part of the bill, which will go through the reconciliation process and arrive at a need for for uh, a simple majority in the Senate and the Democratic caucus to vote as a whole in the House in order to pass that bill and send it to President Biden's desk. So, you know, the, art, the, the arguments uh, seem to be boiling down. And, and while I will say that uh, there are still, you know, details to be worked out on the second bill, the soft infrastructure bill, there is still a, a distance between the parties on what's going to be contained in it, how it's going to be paid for, and so forth and so on. However, um, it, it is looking like the, uh, the holdouts, these moderate holdouts, are, are poised to scuttle this second bill, which potentially, if you know, Joe Biden uh, sticks with his uh, desire to have both bills to sign as basically a, a restitched together package consisting of these two bills, um, that could be in some jeopardy. Um, you know, as uh, Representative Tim Malinowski, a moderate Democrat from New Jersey, has said, uh, the important thing is to get both bills passed and to the president. I fear that forcing a vote now would undermine and not advance that goal. And the article says that that is, you know, a, a correct statement, uh, but it could be even worse. It would be one thing if the irresponsible moderates, and again, this is according to the article, 
uh, were genuinely concerned about voter backlash from unpopular elements of the potential reconciliation bill. But that's not what's happening. Instead, their focus appears to be carving out unpopular tax concessions for their wealthy donors, uh, as explained uh, in the article. Um, you know, and, and one of the people who signed this letter, one of the nine, uh, Josh Gottenheimer, uh, has been crusading for a restoration of the state and local tax deduction, a benefit for some of his affluent constituents. Jim Costa, another signer, wants to protect the heirs to massive fortunes from any taxation on their windfall. Now, jump out of the article there for a second. Uh, who do those arguments sound like? They actually sound like the arguments we hear all the time from the Republican side of the aisle. Uh, the Republicans are very big on uh, tax savings and other elements that protect the wealth of the wealthiest people in this country. While it has always seemed like the Democrats were, were fighting for all the rest of us out here in the low rent district where, you know, we're struggling just to make ends meet. Um, and, you know, I, I find this uh, both interesting and concerning because to me it says that there is a potential uh, for some type of collaboration between these moderate Democrats and Republicans on getting changes and concessions built into this infrastructure bill that would benefit the richest, you know, one, two percent of this country who already see tremendous tax benefits, uh, you know, and, and so forth. I was looking at an article as I was doing research, and it talked about some of the kinds of money that, um, you know, some of the wealthiest, the 0.01 percenters in this country got under the 2017 tax cut that was signed into law by uh, former President Donald Trump. You know, uh, names, you know, names like, um, uh, you know, the, the, the chairman of or the, the owners of the Uline Corporation who saw, you know, some $16 billion in, you know, tax benefits uh, come to them under the Trump tax cut. Uh, and, you know, several others. There's an article, and also I, it's, it's a very long article, uh, so I, I won't go, go into it in this show f for time considerations, but I will put a link to the file on the Facebook page uh, so that by the time this show airs, that will be available as well. I encourage you to read that and look at the charts and tables to see exactly how the Trump tax cut uh, benefited the richest uh, people in the country at a rate and an amount that was four times what the, you know, those of us, as I said, the normal people out here in America got. Um, the, the richest 0.01% of the country under the Trump tax cut got a, a, an estimated $24.6 billion, with a B, dollars of tax savings as compared with uh, $6.4 billion dollars for all the rest of the 99.9% of, of Americans out there. And that's not even getting into the benefits that you know, the largest corporations uh, saw through the, the Trump tax cuts. So these democratic versions uh, of consideration for you know, tax cuts for the wealthiest in the country 
uh, rings is kind of problematic for me in that, um, you know, it, it clearly speaks of some of these Democrats moving away from what could be considered traditional Democratic principles and platforms of, you know, watching out for the, the, the basic American citizen for the, the poor and the working, the working class and the middle class in this country and looking to benefit their wealthiest constituents uh, as a, as a, uh, a process of this infrastructure bill. So, you know, it is, um, and a, a really just concerning turn of events that we're seeing here. And again, as I said, it looks like the battle lines are being drawn and, you know, the, the worrisome thing for us, for the, for the electorate, for the voters out here, is that we're looking at this battle that may overshadow everything else that's going on, um, you know, simply because uh, as the, the, the Trump-loyal portions of the Republican Party uh, hold, you know, the, the rest of the Republican Party hostage, uh, that the, the wealthy favoring uh, portions of the Democratic Party are going to do the same thing on their side of the aisle. So, you know, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep apprised of it. And again, as our call to actions go, you know, this too should be something that should be part of your conversations with your federal legislators uh, to say, look, this infrastructure bill, both of them are important and they need to be passed, you know, as whole as they possibly can. Uh, and, you know, tax credits for the wealthy, uh, that should not be a, a roadblock to getting this important legislation accomplished. So, as I said, we'll keep you posted on it, and, you know, I'm sure there's going to be more to come. So, you know, stay tuned, stay with us here at Fired Up, because we, we look out for these things uh, where, you know, more mainstream media might give it, you know, 30 seconds here on this show, you know, you're, you're getting, you know, 10 or 12 minutes of discussion of content on these important issues. All right. So uh, to to round out the show, I want to want to follow up on one story that I brought to you um, last week uh, because we had passed the deadline where the CDC moratorium on evictions had expired and the Biden administration seemed to be struggling with how exactly it was going to reinstate them if it was going to reinstate them at all. Well, apparently on the 13th of August, uh, according to the Associated Press, a, a federal judge uh, refused landlords' request to put the Biden administration's new eviction moratorium on hold though she ruled that the freeze is uh, illegal. U.S. District Judge Dabney Frederick said her hands are tied by an appellate decision from the last time courts considered the evictions moratorium in the spring. Alabama landlords who are challenging the moratorium, which is set to expire on October 3rd, are likely to appeal her ruling. Uh, in discussing the new moratorium imposed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention because of COVID-19, President Joe Biden acknowledged last week that there were questions about its legality, 
but he said a court fight over the new order would buy time for the distribution of some of the more than $46 billion in rental assistance that has been approved but not yet used. Uh, the Treasury Department has said that only about $3 billion of the first slice of $25 billion had been distributed through June. All right, step out of the article here for a second. Call to action. We need to be communicating with our legislators about, at the state level, about getting off the dime with that money for rental assistance for renters and for the assistance for landlords and building owners. Uh, for them to be sitting on this money for, you know, since March is ridiculous. All right. All right. Back into the article. Um, as of August 2nd, roughly three and a half million people in the United States said they faced eviction within the next two months, according to the Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey. White House Press Press Secretary Jan Psaki said in a statement Friday that the administration believes the CDC moratorium is legal. Quote, we are pleased that the district court left the moratorium in place, though we are aware that further proceedings in this case are likely. So, you know, the, the situation here is where the, the can has been kicked down the road to October 3rd. However, the, the pandemic uh, in the percentages of the Delta variant now, and as I mentioned in last week's show, the Lambda variant, which is the new variant on the horizon, which you know, has some even more uh, you know, infectious potential than the Delta variant, uh, as it looks like it's rearing its head for a roll across the country. Um, the need to have a cohesive and more long-term strategy for assisting renters and building owners with their struggle uh, to meet uh, rent and mortgage payments and so forth uh, needs to be addressed by our, our state and federal legislators. Now, as I said, there's $46 billion in the fund that was already allocated. So for a start, we need to be communicating to our legislators to start putting in place the mechanism to distribute that money. Uh, and then, you know, to our, our federal legislators, we need to be, you know, addressing their actions in terms of establishing more long-term assistance. Now, you know, it, it, it may not be uh, economically practical to just keep creating these large buckets of money for people to dip into, you know, as needed, or it may be a need to find a mechanism to fund sort of a basic, uh, and, and it's sort of a, a, uh, an idea based on the you know, basic living income that was proposed by several candidates during the campaign for the 2020 election, where that there is a, a stipend or you know, some form of assistance that could be given uh, to renters or to mortgage holders, perhaps even to cover, you know, a, a portion. Maybe it's, you know, 30% or 50%, find a number. But the idea that, you know, at, at, as many as I reported on this show, uh, you know, last week and the week before, there's potential for 11 and a half million people to be homeless as of oct now, October 3rd. And, you know, October 3rd brings us right into the start. You know, we're in the middle of fall, heading into winter. 
And if you've got, you know, 11 million people who are homeless trying to find a place to live, by the way, where the fact that you've been evicted is a huge red flag to any potential landlord out there, um, you know, it is is highly problematic and something that we need our government to address at federal and state level. So. That's our call to action on that element. Let's let's get communicating. Let's get the message to our elected officials. This is important. This is critical. This is something that we need to address and we need to address now while you know we still have time before the harsh winter weather sets in. All right. So as always, that's that's how we do it here on Fired Up. We bring you the information. We give you a call to action on some things that you can do to to take matters in, back into your hands and begin to reassert the control that the elected part the elected body is supposed to have over the elected officials so on that note we're gonna we're gonna sign it off for this week everybody thank you so much for listening as always i appreciate it any comments criticisms or questions please send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com be sure to check out our uh, webpage at the same name on Facebook. I'm sorry, our Facebook page at the same name on Facebook uh, for additional information. And, you know, be safe, get vaccinated, practice what science and the doctors are telling us. Stay safe. And I look forward to talking to all of you again, as always, in seven days. Started yesterday, and we're already late.